Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Jails across Michigan are in a state of crisis. There is a lot of overcrowding and mental health concerns are serious problems, and those problems cost taxpayers money and could compromise safety for inmates and for communities. Last year, Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist and Michigan Supreme Court Chief Justice Bridget McCormick teamed up as co-chairs of a new task force meant to find better ways to run our criminal justice system. The Michigan Joint Task Force on Jail and Pretrial Incarceration made its recommendations earlier this month. And I am joined now by Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist and Supreme Court Chief Justice Mary McCormick. Welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, Yeah, good to be here. So tell me, what brought you together to lead this effort? Well, there was, let me take a step back. So criminal justice reform has been a really interesting issue area for the past several years where there has been this national bipartisan consensus that the way our justice system works has not been working for communities, for people who have committed offenses and for the communities that we need to keep safe. So that trend came to Michigan when a a bipartisan coalition of Governor Gretchen Whitmer, of the Senate Majority Leader, the uh, Speaker of the House, uh, law enforcement all came together to say that we needed to really look into this problem because no one really understood who was in our jails, why, for how long, et cetera. So Governor Whitmer signed an executive order last year in, I think, March that established this task force and graciously appointed the chief justice and myself to co-chair it. And we formed a bipartisan 21-member task force that had uh, not just the two of us, but legislators from both parties, law enforcement, uh, prosecutors, attorneys, people who have been formerly incarcerated, uh, uh, victims' rights advocates, people who were survivors of crime, all coming together to do the deepest dive in the history of the county jail system in the mm-hmm. state of Michigan to understand how it needs to be reformed. And uh, we were really proud to be a part of it. So, so Bridget, talk about the questions you set out to tackle and how you went about forming the recommendations to address them. Yeah. Um, it was first. I want to um, agree with my uh, my esteemed co-chair here. It was an honor to work with this group, um, and, and especially um, the bipartisan nature of it. But so what we, I think, I, I like to think about it in three parts. We had to figure out who is in our jails and why. So, mm-hmm. what, what, and we didn't know that before we started. We had no statewide data. There are 83 counties in Michigan, Stephen, 81 jails. Um, each one keeps its own data in its own way. We never before understood why our jail populations had um, tripled over the last 30 years when crime is at a 50-year low. Okay, so the first step was figure out who's in there and why they're in there. Mm-hmm. That took a while. Um, we had wonderful assistance from the Pew Charitable Trusts who actually um, w- were on the ground collecting that data for us. Once and, we figured and it's out, worth, it's yeah. worth stopping, pausing there to talk about what we learned about yeah. who was in those jails because there were some surprises there. Yeah, I mean... Um, um, uh, I don't know. You know, I, I think some people in certain communities would say they were not surprised. Yeah. But I think for but I think, you know, for lots of us, um, that was an important obviously it's an important first step. You have mm-hmm. to you have to know who's there and why before you can figure out what recommendations to make about about why that's that's true. Um, so, yeah, yeah we, we, we learned um, that about 50 percent of the people in Michigan jails um, have not been convicted of any crime. They're pretrial. They are awaiting process. They just can't afford to pay their bond. Um, we also learned that um, a large number of people that are cycling through our jails that are making up these jail populations are doing short stays for minor offenses, things like not paying court costs and fines. Mm-hmm. Um, driving with a suspended license turns out to be one of the main the lieutenant governor always uses this line, drivers of our jail populations, pun intended. No pun intended, whatever, you know what I mean. Um, but minor offenses that um, that are not 
plainly making our communities safer. Um, But they're expensive in lots of ways, not just because we have to house them in jail for whatever amount of time, but because when they're in jail, somebody else has to take care of their kids. Nobody's paying their taxes. Nobody's paying their child support, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so, So we did learn a lot about who's in those jails. And from there, we actually split up into three subgroups to make policy recommendations sort of across the life of a a criminal case. So we made a series of recommendations in the arrest, um, arrest deflection space, mm-hmm. series of recommendations in the bail pretrial space, and a series of recommendations in the um, sentencing phase. A lot of people in our jails are actually serving time for violations of probation and parole that were very technical, called in late, you know, shut up a day late. Also, not clearly making our community safer to put those folks in jail instead of some other kind of um, way to uh, make them conform. Yeah. Stephen, one other important part about the process was in addition to the expert testimony that we had in the six meetings that we held across the state, we had meetings in Detroit, Lansing, Grand Rapids, Traverse City, you know, all across the state. Um, we also heard public testimony. We heard at least 13 or 14 hours of public testimony from people all across the state. And to a person, they came to tell us about why the system was not working for them, either them, themselves or a loved one, whether they were a survivor of crime, a victim, whether they had been incarcerated themselves. They all said it didn't work. They said they needed different types of support. Mm. Um, we also saw um, that, yes, the data showed that uh, people of color are disproportionately impacted by the criminal justice system, which is not shocking. That is not but a One shock. thing that was <laughs> shocking is looking at what was the core, the, the, the primary source of the growth in our jail population when we talk about that overcrowding and it was women in rural communities Mm. which speaks to the way that we've been policing and how we need to approach that so that's why these three categories of analysis were so important and um, I'm I'm proud of what we were able to produce yeah so let's talk about the recommendations that you've come up with so there's a lot of them um, but I think it you know some of them are um, uh, pretty easy for I think just about anybody to understand so for example um, we recommended that the state decouple driving um, driver's license suspensions from offenses that have nothing to do with driving safety. Hmm. So it's not making sense to um, suspend Stephen Henderson's driver's license because he's late on paying his speeding ticket. Because you know what? Now he has a misdemeanor the next time he gets pulled over, for which he must go to jail. And when he's in jail, he's not here doing his radio show earning his paycheck so he can make sure he pays those um, overdue fines and fees. So decoupling driver's license suspensions from offenses that have nothing at all to do with driving safety is, is one of our um, top recommendations and hopefully feels yeah. like um, uh, an easy one. And I think it's important because it gets to this question of whether we had been sort of headed back to the idea of debtor's prison. I know that's that's uh, you know that's a very powerful word and I don't mean to to imply that we were doing uh, that kind of retrograde sentencing and, and imprisonment here in Michigan but the but the idea that because you can't pay a fee because you don't keep up with fines or things like that that you could go to jail where you could not earn the money to pay those fines in the first place is something that had just gotten out of control. Here Stephen, I don't think you need to be afraid to go there. You, you would, you're, you're good with that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it is, it is true. I mean, we saw this, we did the analysis and it's one of the reasons why another one of the important recommendations was significantly reforming 
the situations in which uh, money can be used to uh, keep someone in jail. Yeah. So we're really looking at our bail, uh, our bail laws and how we're treating bail in the state of Michigan. We've seen across the country um, states take uh, a wide range of actions to try to either eliminate um, money bail altogether or significantly restrict the situations and when it can be used. And the recommendations that we've made have tried to be much more thoughtful and bring a much more rigorous analysis to when um, bail can be used because the research has shown that you know this actually is not a real way to motivate people to show up in court. You know, it's not a real way to actually uh, make sure people are participating in the justice system to get the accountability that we say that we want. And so we should be looking toward mechanisms that actually work, sending people reminders on their phones to make sure that they know when to show up so they don't have these technical violations and things like that. So the recommendations are trying to be practical, but they also are speaking to righting this wrong of locking people up because they don't have the money, the ability to pay. So how do we analyze that in a real way that's responsive? And not only is it like constitutionally required, which I think what you were getting at, actually, mm-hmm. the Constitution doesn't allow you to go to jail because you can't <laughs> right. afford to pay a fine or fee. Yeah. So that's important, obviously. That's a, sort of like a fundamental principle of our, our the, the, the system we all hold you know, dear. But in addition to that, it actually the research shows that it doesn't make communities it doesn't safer. Work. It actually yeah. it, it make in, in fact, the research shows it, it it makes people more likely to recidivate when they go to even to, go to jail even for a short stay. So you know we're like it, it's 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 not producing good results no matter who it is you're um, worried about protecting. Yeah, uh, my guests are Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist and Michigan Supreme Court Chief Justice Bridget McCormick. We're talking about the Michigan Joint Task Force on Jail and Pretrial Incarceration, which has made its recommendations for reforming jail and pretrial practices here in the state of Michigan. Let's talk about strengthening the presumption of release. What does that mean and why is it an important part of these recommendations? So this is what the lieutenant governor was talking about a little bit um, um, earlier. It's we, you know, now that we know that 50 percent of the um, uh, populations in our jail are facing trial, they can't afford to pay their bail. Um, we that's a lot. That's a that's a that's a big number driving a very big population. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, some of those folks are properly there because they pose a danger to the community. And we are the recommendations we made will allow judges to continue to protect the community from people who are posing a danger to either specific people or, um, or others. On the other hand, if people are there simply because they can't post a $200 bond, a $100 bond um, on a uh, traffic offense, and they do not pose a public safety threat, um, we wanted to recommend um, changes both to the process a defendant receives in court, um, as well as some opportunities for deflection and diversion before somebody even goes to court mm-hmm. um, to reduce that part of the pretrial jail population. Yeah, it's, I mean, this is, this is really important. Um, we need to also make sure that when, when understanding why people are in jail, one of the things that we heard uh, both from the experts and from the, the public testimony uh, and from the research was a significant fraction of people um, are just need different services that they're not getting from the community and certainly can't get from being in jail. And so that's why we also recommend a significant uh, increase in investment in behavioral uh, health opportunities and services. So rather than sending someone to jail, we send them to something that can actually help them, whether it's with a substance abuse uh, disorder or with uh, mental and behavioral health challenges. Those services are, uh, some jails are attempting to deliver those services, but at the end of the day, this is not what law enforcement is trained for. This is not what the the, uh, jail uh, staff people who are doing their best, and that's a really hard job. Let's be really clear about that. Um, 
But that part of that job description is not delivering mental and behavioral health services to people who need them. It puts uh, people who are incarcerated at risk. It puts those jail, those people who work for those jails at risk. And so we need to really uh, divert them to situations and contexts that will really be more helpful to them. And I think that is part of this conversation about the presumptions of innocence, because these people who have had these conditions, like that they might not be criminals. These are people who are, you know, have conditions that have led them into situations and we need to help lead them out of them. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the sheriffs and the police officers are quite eloquent about this point. We have made the sheriffs and the um, their deputies and the police officers in our communities the frontline mental health workers in our um, state. And that's not what they were trained for. That's not what they signed up for. Um, and it's not fair to the sheriffs and it's not fair to the police officers, right. period. Right. And I know this is not in the purview of what you guys are looking at, but the reason that's true, or at least part of the reason that's true, is because we've just shredded the mental health uh, provisions of, of our state government yeah. in a way that that um, that puts all of the onus on, on criminal justice. Well, we believe that... that- you know, the reason that this is part of those recommendations is in part to make yet another argument for why the state needs to make those investments and recommit to those. And, you know, frankly, you know, our administration um, you know, wants to put the state back on that path. So it's something that is is very important to us. Yeah. So, so let's talk about what the next steps are. These recommendations go where? So they've been delivered to the legislative leadership um, and and now they will go through the legislative deliberation process. So we delivered 18 recommendations and the Speaker of the House and the chairperson of the uh, House Judiciary Committee, those are Lee Chatfield and, and Graham Filler, they have committed to not only the speedy drafting of bills that reflect these recommendations, but also uh, expediting them getting the hearings that they need. It's important that we act on this quickly. Communities are suffering, um, victims are suffering, and it's one of the reasons why we recommend a significant increase in the investment in victim services as well, and making sure that victims actually know where these cases stand, mm-hmm. which they like didn't have a good way of having that information, which is very unsettling if you have survived um, I know a terrible thing. So the the process now, these will go into hearings and this will be, again, a public process where people will be able to participate and deliberate. We had to do a lot of work to reach these consensus recommendations. There were a lot of stakeholders, like I said, judges, prosecutors, sheriffs. These are people who don't agree on stuff a lot, yeah. right? But uh, they came together to build this consensus and now we are working in the task force, which does not go away. The task force will be will remain intact through September. And we will now be an advocacy body to ensure that the spirit and, you know, to the extent that it can be the letter of these recommendations are reflected in legislation that gets to Governor Whitmer's desk so that our administration can sign it into law and implement it. So we're, we're ready to work. Um, we're excited about that, that phase of this work. And all the task force members are ready to remain engaged. And, I, and I'll say the speaker and the Senate Majority Leader were um, signatories to the original um, uh, agreement yes. to uh, staff the to task force, this. find yeah. the data. And they both um, said very clearly that this is a priority. This is, um, the, I think the speaker said it's it's his it's his main priority, this legislative session. So yeah. it feels like um, there's momentum and interest and um, we're optimistic that, that the legislation will reflect what we recommended. You know, criminal justice reform uh, in 2019 was the number one area of bipartisan consensus in Michigan in terms of uh, bills signed into law um, by our administration. Um, we signed civil asset forfeiture. We raised the age. Um, uh, changed the rules for paroling medically frail individuals. Um, we did regulation changes that allow returning citizens to get professional licenses. I signed a bill into law that allows people that have uh, certain types of uh, records to now be able to you know, sell insurance. Mm-hmm. Like We did a lot of work in this area. We want to continue to build on that bipartisan momentum in 2020, and, and let's see what we can get done before the elections take over everything. Well, and, and of course, this, this is 
I mean, it's a huge first step, but it's still a first step. I mean, there are a lot of other issues in our criminal justice system that that need addressing. Uh, that's right. Um, but this is a pretty important part of it because mm-hmm. it's the front end of the criminal justice system. And to the extent that we can um, be more careful about who we funnel into that system, yeah. um, we're, we're, we're going to be a huge step ahead of probably every other state in the country. And Michigan can really be a national leader if it acts on these recommendations. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the, the, the reason why there is bipartisan interest in a lot of these issues is because it's both evidence-based um, um, uh, recommendations and values-based recommendations. You know, they reflect both the data that we now have and the values that we all have. It's not the case, Stephen, that when a, a system of government isn't working and you keep throwing more money at it, that we usually say, oh, it's still not working, let's throw more money at it, <laughs> yeah. right? That's not what conservatives say. And right. that's, um, so somebody has to stand up for conservative values here, and there, there, you, there you have it. <laughs> right. I mean, we spend $2 billion a year yeah. on this system, and it does not work. And if it's not, not making work, us safer, yeah. why, why would we keep banging our head against the wall? Let's figure out how to make bold, innovative changes to make Michigan a national leader um, and it will strengthen our economies and 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 make our communities safer. Yeah. You know, this did call into question, you know, what is the purpose of this justice system? And so, you know, and we, we had some really robust conversations about this. And it's about, you know, from my perspective, uh, protecting public safety in the broadest sense, which everyone is included in that public the public safety. So that means the, pe- the people in the community at large and also the people who, you know, may have committed offenses. They deserve uh, safety for them is a fair process. Safety for them is something that recognizes their dignity and humanity as they go through that process. And so we believe these recommendations get us closer to that. And and um, so so we're, we're excited to advocate for them. Yeah. Uh, Lieutenant Governor, I've got you here. So I need to ask you about the governor's second state of the state address. Give us a preview of what we might expect from that speech. Uh, it's going to be a great speech. That, 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 <laughs> I'm <that's> surprised <laughs> to hear you say that. <laughs> but no, we are, uh, you know, coming in after our first year, you know, um, we are going to talk a little bit. Uh, the governor, you'll hear a little bit from the governor talking about things that were, were done and, and um, sort of things that were done to move Michigan communities forward. But we're going to talk about that we still have some urgent challenges that need to be addressed. Our roads and infrastructures, like they did not get better uh, last year. And then part of that, a lot of that has to do with the, frankly, the inaction um, from the Republican led legislature in, in not coming to the table with a real solution that actually puts not only the safety of our infrastructure in, in, uh, at the forefront, but also the, the health of it going forward. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think you're going to hear us talk about, you know, how we plan to deal with that inaction um, during this speech, but you're also going to hear about a few other areas where we're working because we still have a, uh, challenges and issues that need to be solved in education. Not enough people have access to the health care they need to survive. Not enough women, not enough children. And so we're going to talk about what we can do to make sure that um, people know that their government, that our administration, that Governor Gretchen Whitmer and I are going to deliver for communities um, as we come into 20, 2020, because so much is at stake. And when you don't act, the stakes only get higher. And so this speech uh, will reflect the fact that those stakes are higher and that there's more that we need to do. And you will see this administration taking bold action. Okay, Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist, Supreme Court Chief Justice Bridget McCormick. It was great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Stephen. Coming up, we're going to talk with Steve Inskeep, host of NPR's Morning Edition, about his new book, Imperfect Union, how Jesse and John Fremont mapped the West, invented celebrity, and helped cause the Civil War. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Yeah.